This is For The Win, a podcast on sports and sports culture. I'm Eddie Sun, the multimedia editor for Annenberg Media Sports, as well as the producer of this podcast. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of For The Win Podcast. I'll be your host, Carlo Jimenez, and I'm joined by Ava Brand, Trace Tempesta, and Jordan McGee. Today we'll be talking everything from Darnold going to Carolina, who our picks are for NBA Finals MVP, and what went down Monday night in Indianapolis. Guys, let's jump right into it. Let's talk about our boy, Sam Darnold. He's out of New York. Some people might say it's a blessing. Some people might say it was a big disappointment. How do we feel about... Uh, Darnold to Carolina, joining Christian McCaffrey. I think it's a great move for both teams, and I think Darnold is going to be the big winner here. I think him and the Jets just were simply not going to work out ever. It was just doomed from the start. Um, And I think it's also really good for him going to coach Matt Rule and seeing his success in turning Temple from going 2-10 to making them go back-to-back 10-win seasons. I think that's a great sign for Darnold and the Panthers. Yeah, I agree that the bigger winners here is Sam Darnold, first of all, but second of all, it's the Carolina Panthers because I think you're getting someone here who still has potential, but um, back to Darnold himself, I mean, he really needed a change of scenery. With Adam Gase and the Jets roster, he was thrown into the fire and he wasn't really given a chance. Just as soon as he was drafted, he was named the starting quarterback right away, and he was the youngest QB ever since the 1970. AFL-NFL merger. He was only 21 years old, and he was starting his very first game possible. Never had a chance to develop, never had a chance to learn the system and watch other guys. So now he's getting an opportunity with a fresh start and I think a clean slate to really do something in this new scene. Yeah, I mean, I think we know that no one's going to succeed under Adam Gase, and I think it's great for him to get out of New York um, and get that fresh start, as you guys were alluding to. Um, for me, I see it as a low-risk, high-reward for the Panthers, you know. They potentially get to get a quarterback who was highly regarded coming out of SC. Um, Might have been a little overdrafted in my eyes, but, you know, still got to support him because he's a fellow Trojan. Um, for the Jets, I, it, it gives them a chance to, um, to take Zach Wilson, as we kind of presume that to be the pick, um, and kind of move on with their new... Um, rebuild with their new coaching staff and um i just see it as a win for both teams but uh you can't really tell who the winner's going to be if zach wilson turns out to be the next pat mahomes then the jets are going to look like they pulled off the better end of the trade but if sam darnold looks like he like he could have looked in new york then they're going to look like they won so it's really only going to be able to be told with time yeah, I think the big part for me that's going to be interesting is how uh, this Christian McCaffrey-Darnold combo works out. Um, McCaffrey's had a lot of really athletic quarterbacks in his time. He took it, Teddy Bridgewater, Cam Newton's an athletic guy who kind of runs the ball too. Those are two guys who can do a lot on their feet. I don't think Darnold is as much able to do as much on his feet. I mean, he's had some nice plays running for his life because the Jets don't have an offensive line. But it'll be interesting to see what kind of more of a pocket present quarterback will look like with a Christian McCaffrey um I don't know do you guys do you guys think that that combo is going to work out yeah I feel like this could be a successful pairing because it's a quarterback with potential and it's a gosh I don't know top five running back I mean we're looking at a special guy here but I think most importantly for Sam Darnold with success is 
Yes, Christian McCaffrey helps and he can relieve some pressure, but it's really going to be about an offensive line. And even from a bigger zoom out from that is a good offense. If it has to be Darnold, if it can't be McCaffrey, if it can't be jet sweeps to wide receivers, if it can't be talent on the outer sides of the field, then Darnold's going to have a very similar situation to New York where he's the only guy getting things done. Le'Veon Bell was supposed to be a Christian McCaffrey in the sense of relieving pressure for him, and that clearly didn't work out. So yes, McCaffrey's going to help, but it can't just be Christian McCaffrey. I think McCaffrey and Darnold would be a great pairing together. I think when you look at even though Darnold's not as athletic as the quarterbacks McCaffrey's been paired with, when you look at um, McCaffrey's should have been, in my opinion, 2015 Heisman season at Stanford, his quarterback was Kevin Hogan, which which you don't really remember much about Kevin Hogan. He was a pretty stationary quarterback, kind of pocket thrower kind of guy. So I think it'll be great for McCaffrey. I think they'll both help relieve the pressure off one another. You know, McCaffrey doesn't have to run miles on end every game at so many yards every play and Darnold doesn't have to throw crazy amounts every game yeah I just Darnold didn't really get his chance in New York I mean he was throwing to Berrios who's a six-round draft pick that was his best wide out um I almost wonder if you know if the Jets maybe would have drafted a wide receiver um if things could have gone a different way and we finally see him throw to somebody who could catch the football but it's just a lot asking on the guy, and I think not having all that pressure, like you guys said, will be a good a good thing for him, and hopefully he's able to thrive. I know Carolina already picked up his fifth-year option, so they believe in him, um, but we'll see how things work out. I mean, also, too, he's going to be reunited with his favorite target and Robbie Anderson in Carolina, so that's definitely something that is going to pique his interest in terms of being a part of the Panthers organization. I mean, for quarterbacks, I've always said, like, there's guys who are good enough to be great in any system, and Sam Darnold's not that guy. Like, he's he's a good quarterback, but he's, he's no, like, Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, who can walk into an organization and just be great on his own. So we'll see if he fits in Matt Rule's system, but I'm kind of I, – I hope he does, but I'm kind of skeptical until I see it happen. All right, let's let's move on. Let's go to our next topic. MV, NBA regular season MVP guys. A lot of conversation, a lot of names thrown in the mix. Who are your front runners right now on April 6th? I think it should be obvious. I don't think he will win, but I think it should be LeBron, the king. He's simply the greatest player still in his what, 18th, 17th year, whatever it is. But I think even when he went down um he was, or when Anthony Davis went out with that um, Achilles injury, the Lakers were still not doing as best as they could be, obviously missing one of their best players. But LeBron was carrying them, and now that LeBron's out, they've just been kind of going on a skid. Um, they're scoring just 99.7 points per 100 possessions without LeBron, which is second worst in the NBA. So I think they really need to get him back and just showing how much – their offense and even their defense changes without LeBron, I think it's clear that he's the most valuable player. I'm going to go with Nikola Jokic on this one. The Denver Nuggets center is really like a point center. I mean, it's not even fair to say he's just a center at this point because he's top 10 in points and rebounds. Yes, a very center-ish thing to do. But what if I told you he's also top 10 in the league in assists? What if I told you he has the second most triple-doubles of anyone in this year 
and he's playing the game at a ridiculously efficient pace. He's number one in PER. He's number one in 538's Raptor metrics. Now, those are some advanced analytics, but let me also just talk about the emotions of what he plays with. He's a guy who can impact the game in so many different ways, and his style of play is like no one I've ever seen before. He's this slow, not necessarily athletic, but so creative center who's changing the way we evaluate the position. I think what he brings to the table is unmatched in his ability to create and make his teammates better. And as such, the Denver Nuggets are legitimate and Jokic is my MVP pick. Personally, I agree with both of you. Um, I agree with Ava because, I mean, LeBron could easily be the MVP every year. I don't think that's really much of a debate. Like, he's been the greatest player in, of our generation. So, um, but knowing that the award usually goes to the most improved superstar, I got to agree with Trace on this one. I, I think Nikola Jokic is deserving. Um, Trace alluded to a lot of his statistics, but what's most amazing to me is the fact that he's leading his own team in most of those major categories, whether it be with his 26 points per game, 11 rebounds, uh, almost nine assists. And he's also the leading three point percentage shooter on his team too, with some really good shooters. So the MVP for me has always been about who brings the most to their team. And obviously LeBron does that every year, but this year I, Given the statistics that Jokic puts up, leading the team in every single major category, it's hard to to say that he's not the front runner in my eyes. Plus, I'd love to see a big man win it for the first time in a while. Um, I, I believe since probably like Nowitzki won it in like oh six oh seven. So, I'd go with Jokic. Yeah, I think those are all good options. I just think we got to think about the MVP is usually the best player on the best team. And right now the best team out east is the Brooklyn Nets. And the guy who's playing the best on that team is James Harden. I mean, I think Harden has really transformed the way he's played in Brooklyn, passing the basketball, playing more of that point guard role, averaging 28, 25, 8, and 10. And he's he's been able to do whatever they need him to do consistently, night in, night out. He's missed uh, three of the last seven. And in two of those games, he's, they've lost. Uh, and he's going to miss 10 days with a hamstring injury. But I think James has been, I mean, I'm not, a, I didn't love James Harden when he was on the Rockets, but the way he has played in uh, in Brooklyn with that system and all that talent around him, I, I just think at the end of the day, it's usually best player, best team. And James Harden has been the best player on the best team out East. Carlo, I get the argument there, but if it's the most valuable player award, let's talk about value. If James Harden gets removed from the Brooklyn Nets roster, they're still a top three team in the East. So it's not like without him, the team is useless. Now, the Denver Nuggets without Nikola Jokic, they're a fringe playoff team. They're probably in the play-in tournament this year from a 7-10 seed. The Brooklyn Nets without James Harden, they're still top three. They're still an Eastern Conference final team. So I think value matters for this conversation. And that's why guys like Jokic get the bump, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it is the most valuable player, but it's never, that's never who it goes to, I feel like. I mean, if we could, if you'd make a most valuable player arguments, I'd say Steph Curry. He doesn't play on the back end of a back to back, and they're down 60 to a Raptors team that's won one of their last 14 games. Like, that's, that's value right there. They go from not great to horrible. I mean, I, I just, it's never most valuable. It's unfortunate the the awards name that, but it's usually best player, best team, and that's why I, I have to pick Harden. Anybody think uh, somebody's not getting talked about, who they think should be in the MVP talk? Maybe they won't win it, but it is just uh, is not getting the chirp that they, they deserve? 
I think a really interesting uh, candidate. Not, I don't know about candidate, but Julius Randle, I think. But none of you are expecting that, but he's leading the Knicks. You know, they're still not doing great. They're right around 500, but he's just maybe most improved player. I think he's really finally stepping into a role where he can carry a team. You know, people have been waiting for this since he came out of Kentucky to the Lakers for years, but I think it's really nice to see his improvement and finally leading a team and being the player that we all wanted him to be. So maybe not most valuable yet, but I think maybe most improved, which is a whole different discussion, but... I think Julius Randle has been really impressive so far. Yeah, Ava. I no, like I that agree pick. with that take. I definitely. Uh, no, I definitely say Julius Randle is probably my front runner for most improved player. I guess I. I don't know. I guess I'm going on this b- big man uh, train, but Joel Embiid. I mean, the Seventy Sixers are playing as good as they've played like um, in the past couple of years, and Joel's averaging close to thirty points per game. You know, I personally kind of see him as like a troll on the court like he's always starting stuff between other players and um, but I do got to give him credit where credit's due and he's averaging 30 11 shooting 40 percent from three as a as a true center so he's also redefining what it means to be a big, big man in the league and I feel like he does deserve a lot of props so I wouldn't mind him being in the conversation as well yeah I think both of those names are being overlooked right now. Another one I'll throw into the ring is Luka Doncic. He was a very hot name to start off the year. I think before any games were played, he was the MVP favorite um, from betting odds. But then since then, everyone's written him off after a slow start, but he's now back to this MVP level of 28 points, eight rebounds, eight assists. And the Mavericks is a team, which I think was his biggest knock in the first place. It, that's no longer the case. They've won five in a row. They're climbing up the standings, and therefore Luka Doncic needs to be in this conversation. All right, well, there you go. There's our there's our picks and some guys we think should be maybe in the mix a little bit more. Let's, uh, let's move on to our final topic today, guys. What happened on Monday night? I mean, we had the undefeated Zags coming in to take on Baylor, and it was never a game. But from the jump ball, maybe, when it was 2-2, but after that, it was all over. What happened? I think, like you said, it wasn't a game. Baylor just came out ready to go and firing. They had more energy. Um, maybe Gonzaga was a little tired, you know, playing overtime in a crazy game. Lots of emotion, I bet. So Gonzaga, or sorry, Baylor just came out, and every time it seemed like Gonzaga was finally going to crawl back in, maybe uh, hit a shot or get a turnover to get some momentum going, Baylor just had an answer, you know. They never let them come back. So props to Baylor, I think. Yeah, Ava, I totally agree there. Baylor just came with unmatched energy. And Donovan Mitchell, not Davion Mitchell, the Baylor player, Donovan Mitchell, the jazz player, he tweeted something about out about how Gonzaga hasn't seen a team like Baylor yet. Like, they weren't ready for the toughness. And he was totally right. Gonzaga's, I looked at their schedule. Gonzaga's toughest opponents in the regular season all came before New Year's. So the last time they really had a challenge, yes, they had some challenges in March Madness. Yes, Other teams gave them close performances, but Baylor had to claw their way out of the Big 12. Every week, they were playing a Oklahoma State, an Oklahoma, a West Virginia, a Texas, a Texas Tech. I mean, they had tough matchups throughout the whole year, and I think that adversity really showed in this championship game where they were ready for a dogfight, and I don't think Gonzaga was. I think the game the other night really showed how to expose the Gonzaga system, essentially. When you force Gonzaga to play the the opponent's game, then they're really 
depressed and kind of like frantic and don't really know what to do. We saw that in the UCLA game where, you know, the, the Bruins really tried to slow down the game and not let Gonzaga get out and run and shoot on transition and get easy buckets. Um, Baylor didn't go as to run the shot clock down as deep as UCLA did, but they also played with a slower tempo, which kind of like prohibited a lot of the Gonzaga players from getting into their grooves. And I think that ultimately um, affected their shooting performance as they didn't shoot how they typically do from the perimeter. Also, there were, like Ava was alluding to earlier, there were a lot of opportunities for Gonzaga to make a push, um, but they never capitalized on them. I know like there was a scoring drought of at least four minutes that Baylor went through it within the second half, and Gonzaga didn't really use that uh, opportunity to claw back into the game. So I think Gonzaga will definitely be back. They have a great coaching staff. Um, but it'll be interesting to see what they'll look like next year, given that Suggs is probably going to leave and a lot of their uh, players are seniors, um, what this program is going to look like. But they'll certainly be back. Yeah, I think the the thing that we're kind of overlooking is, like, I feel like almost once that UCLA game went to overtime, like, it's going to be an uphill battle because Gonzaga's coming off 48 hours earlier. They're playing arguably the best NCAA March Madness game ever, like ever of all time, an emotional win. And you have to come out and play a Baylor team who hasn't had a game under 10 points all tournament. I mean, they, they if you just look at box scores, Baylor coasted to a national championship. They did not play a close game in their, what is it, five wins, six wins you need, six wins you need to win a national championship. They didn't play a close game. And that means guys are on the bench at the end of games. Guys are you know, getting to ice baths early, they're getting out of the arena early, they're getting back to their beds early, they had a chance to watch the UCLA game, and I mean, they came out fresh, and they blitzed Gonzaga early, and you're right, Jordan, at one point, Baylor went six and five and a half minutes without a field goal, and the, the scoring margin didn't close, and you just, you gotta think, how tired are those legs, how emotionally exhausted are those guys after an incredible game Saturday night? Yeah, Carlo, you mentioned since the UCLA overtime maybe, but I'm going to go even further back for Gonzaga. Give our USC team some credit. USC went tied them in the second half, 36-36. So maybe that was the start of Gonzaga's uphill battle, you know. They had a tough second half against USC, but, I mean, obviously they were still fine in that game. But um, And then we saw UCLA. Obviously that was a crazy game. So maybe it was just the start of the fire for Gonzaga that made it all crash and burn. Yeah, when you got when you got to turn around and and play a team that's that's been waiting for you all year. I mean, that's who they've had circled all year. That was the team that was picked preseason number one above them, and they're rested and they watched your game and they got to bed early and they got a game plan in. Like, I just think that's a that's a tough spot to be in to try to win a national championship uh, on limited rest. And like, do you guys think? I don't know. Do you think in a way we shouldn't have these forty eight hour turnarounds because it hinders. Uh, the team that plays that night game. I mean, maybe we would have got a better game had we played tonight. Uh, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Personally, I like the back-and-forth nature of the tournament. I feel like, I don't know, being someone that's played AAU basketball, you're constantly playing, and I feel that's something that's an element unique to a tournament setting. So I don't mind the quick turnarounds. I actually kind of think it's, in a lot of instances, helps a lot of teams because it allows them to keep their momentum and kind of stay hot. Um, Maybe the extra day, but I don't think there should be much change in terms of how they schedule the games. 
I think it's a, a fair conversation, but it can't be an excuse for Gonzaga because they've dealt with this throughout the whole year just with COVID cancellations and quick improvising off of different opponents. But it is a fair conversation from a macro perspective of you don't know your opponents until 48 hours before the game or even less in some circumstances. So, of course, from a scouting perspective and from an overall preparation scene, you might get one practice in throughout that time. And if you have to have virtual practice conversations, I mean, there's definitely an element to say that the team wasn't as prepared as they would like to be. But however, Baylor had that same uncertainty. So thankfully, it's equal in the sense that both teams didn't know who they were playing in advance. But it is fair to say that, gosh, were these teams really both at their peak if you only have 48 hours to prepare for who you're going up against? I think, too, it's important that if even though Baylor had more rest, you got to give them props for beating their opponents so like hard out of the gate they deserve that more rest and yeah like you said they're still playing on a short 48 hours so they do have that component but in my eyes the national champion should be the team who wins the national championship game should be the best team and if Baylor is beating all these teams by so many points that they can rest their best players at the end of the games and get out of the arena early then they deserve to be national champion yeah yeah I don't think anybody's that's that was a the, for a year focused on Gonzaga, you look back, that Baylor team was pretty good. Pretty good. And how about Scott Drew? I mean, when he took over that job in 2003, before that, another player murdered another player. And here they are 18 years later with a national championship. I mean, a rebuild, a rebuild, quite the one. All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for us here on this episode of For the Win. Thanks for tuning in. Um, you can put your money line on our bets for the MVP conversation. Um, We'll see you next time and always remember to go for the win.